Good morning. Today, we will continue in our study of Paul's letter to the Colossian church, uh, as we did last week, studying the last portion of Paul's instructions for how Christians should live in light of the supremacy of Christ and in light of the power of the gospel. In chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, Paul laid out how the Colossian believers should love one another and how they should live and worship in the church. Last week, in chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 1, Paul set forth how a Christian household should function with the relationships between husband and wife, parent and child, master and slave, all being affected by the gospel and subservient to the lordship of Christ. This week in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, we will study what Paul has to say about the life of a Christian outside of the home and outside of the church in the wider world. We will see how when confronted with a Greco-Roman culture that, much like our own current Western culture, was completely immersed in all sorts of debauchery and sexual immorality, Paul does not describe a life of withdrawal and isolation from the world. Instead, Paul calls Christians to a life of prayer and evangelism. So let us read Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. This is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you've given us through your apostle Paul here in his letter to the Colossians. Lord, we pray that as we study it today, as we study what what you have to say about how we should live uh, in this world that is so, so far away and different from how you created it, perfect and good. Lord, we pray that uh, you would encourage us, especially those of us who are discouraged, Lord, that you would encourage us towards a life of, of faithfulness, of living these verses out in our lives. Lord, we pray that uh, you would convict us of where we, are, where we have failed and that you will constantly lead us back to 
um, your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray these things in his name. Amen. Our sermon today will consist of two points. Firstly, the prayerful life, and secondly, the evangelistic life. That's the prayerful life and the evangelistic life. So our passage today begins in verse 2, where Paul tells the Colossians to continue steadfastly in prayer. The NASB and the NIV translate this as devote yourselves to prayer. So we have continue steadfastly and devote yourselves to prayer. Both translations convey with different approaches that Paul saw it as vital that believers should be consistent, intentional, and intense in their prayers. This is not the only passage either where Paul exhorts Christians to constancy in prayer. There's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul encourages his readers to pray without ceasing. And Ephesians 6.18, where he writes, Pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. What would it look like if Christians, if the church, took these exhortations literally and implemented them? Would it lead us to being a bunch of monks and nuns holed away in a monastery somewhere, cloistered from the world and its worries, being, as the saying goes, too heavenly-minded for any earthly good? The answer to that is no, of course. What would it look like then? The answer is in the accounts we see about the New Testament church in Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, as they are waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit and Pentecost, the followers of Jesus were completely devoting themselves to prayer. In chapter 2, verse 42, we see the newly formed church devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. In chapter 4, verses 23 through 31, when confronted with the demand, the demand by the chief priests in Jerusalem to stop preaching the gospel, the apostles and the church responded by praying together passionately that God would continue to give them the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And in chapter 12, when Peter is arrested for preaching by Herod, the church responds by praying together fervently for his release. Indeed, they were so devoted to prayer that after Paul's miraculous escape, he wasn't even able to get into the house where they were praying. So we can see how the New Testament church was devoted to prayer in their normal daily, day-in, week-in, week-out lives, they prayed. When seeking revival, they prayed. When threatened with persecution, they prayed. And when actually persecuted, they prayed. 
So here Paul is exhorting believers to continue in this cultivating a lifestyle of prayer. And as we can see in these passages, especially communal prayer, where believers come together to intercede for each other, the larger church, and the salvation of the lost. The same thing I might mention that happens every Wednesday night at 6.45 p.m. in the room over there here at our church. Paul also attaches two specific qualifications for how the Colossians should pray. They should be watchful in their prayers and they should pray with thanksgiving. This theme of watchfulness echoes Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he brought Peter, James, and John to pray with him at night as he was agonizing, awaiting his betrayal, awaiting his crucifixion upon the cross for the sins of the world. You are probably aware, I imagine, of the fact that his disciples did a rather poor job of supporting him in prayer, as we can read in Matthew chapter 26, verses 40 and 41. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Of course, the exhortation to watch has a simple and literal meaning to stay awake. I would certainly recommend that to you as a good practice to keep while you are praying, to be awake and not to sleep. But do you notice how Jesus told the disciples to keep watch so that they would not fall into temptation? Prayer is a vital tool for keeping us spiritually awake and alert. It forces us to lift our eyes from our day-to-day routines and lift them up to heaven, where we are confronted with an all-powerful, all-knowing God who loves us, who is in control of all the things that are going on around us, and who calls us to live in a certain way. Prayer makes us alert to God's greatness, to our sin, to God's goodness, and to our need. This alertness protects us from the assaults of Satan, the corruption of the world that is around us, and the weakness of our own flesh. So we must stay watchful in our prayers. Then Paul exhorts the Colossians to pray with thanksgiving. It is all too easy, especially in times of difficulty, to pray with a thankless or even a bitter heart. To air our complaints to God, to speak 
eloquently and at great length about all of our needs and about all of our trials. And why not? These are the things that stand directly before us. There is certainly a place for this. And indeed, God tells us to bring our worries, our cares, our burdens, and our needs to him in prayer. But we must not forget to also bring him our thanks. We must not let the trials of this world blind us to all that God has done for each one of us. Every good thing that we have had, that we do have, that we ever will have, only comes from the grace of God. And most importantly, it is only by his grace and his love for us that we can petition him at all, that we can be reconciled to him, and that we can bear the pain of this life based on the certainty of the coming eternal life without pain in his presence. One tool that was suggested to me and which I use to help myself in this area, and this is merely a suggestion, not a prescription from Scripture, is the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, which stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. This helps me personally to remember to praise God for who he is, to confess my own sin and unworthiness, to thank him for all that he has done for me and for the ones that I love for the church, and to bring my requests and the requests that have been placed on my heart to him. I would encourage everybody to find some method, whether it's one I described or anything else, to make sure that your prayer does not become uneven and unbalanced, but is instead suffused with thanksgiving, as Paul exhorts us. In verses 3 and 4, Paul requests that the Colossians pray for one thing specifically. Let's look at those verses again. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. At the beginning of this letter to the Colossians, Paul told them how he and those who were with him had been praying for them. And here, Paul asked them to return the favor. Now, Paul was an apostle. He was one of the foremost leaders of the church in the world. He was personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yet he did not consider himself above asking every single believer from the most mature to the least mature, from the oldest to the youngest, from the most powerful to the weakest, to pray for him. 
This was because he knew that he and his associates needed prayer. He knew that corresponding to the huge importance of the work that they were doing for the kingdom of God, they were and would continue to be attacked by Satan in equal measure. In light of that, his specific request is remarkable. He does not ask the Colossians to pray that he and his friends would be protected from harm or that he would be released from prison. No, instead he asks them to pray that God would open doors so that he could do even more of what got him into prison in the first place. The preaching of the word of God and the proclamation of the gospel and that he would be enabled to do it as effectively as possible. This speaks volumes about Paul's priorities and it should cause us to examine our own. How much of our prayer for ourselves involves us asking God to open doors for us to share the gospel with those who are around us? How often do we ask our brothers and sisters in Christ to pray the same thing for us? We should also examine ourselves for how often we pray for our pastor, for our elders, for our missionaries around the world. Are we regular in our prayer for them? Not just for their needs to be met and for their safety, though that is certainly important, but that doors for the gospel would be opened to them and that they would be able to take advantage of it. The majority of believers will never be called to be pastors, elders, or missionaries. Yet all of us are called and all of us are able to play a vital role in the work of pastors, elders, and missionaries through constant, consistent prayer. Let us take up that call, being consistent, watchful, and thankful in our prayers, praying that the gospel would go forth powerfully and that God would bring more and more and more of the lost out of the darkness and into the light. That brings us to our second point, the evangelistic life. In verses 5 and 6 of our passage today, Paul outlines another vital component of the Christian life, evangelism, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. In verse 5, we see how we can evangelize through our actions, while in verse 6, we see how we ought to evangelize with our words. Let's look at verse 5 again first. Where Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. The language of walking is here being used to describe a way of living and of conducting oneself. We can see the scriptural precedent for this already all the way back in the first psalm, where the psalmist warns his hearers not to walk in the counsel of the wicked. 
Here, Paul encourages believers not just to avoid walking in wickedness, but to walk in wisdom. Scholars point out that Paul is probably referencing here the false teaching which was rampant in Colossae at the time, in which he had already rebuked in chapter 2, verse 23, saying, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul rejected completely the empty and worthless wisdom of the pagans, cultists, and Gnostics in the world. Instead, here he is speaking about the wisdom that he referenced in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 of Colossians. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, Paul says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Biblical wisdom is a love for the law and the gospel of God. The understanding of how it applies to one's life and the ability to live it out. A life walked in wisdom is not just important for believers' own sake, but for the sake of those who are lost. A life that is lived in Christian wisdom is a life that is wonderfully, radically a counter-cultural picture of the gospel and the goodness of God to his people. I'm sure we all are painfully aware of the many Christians throughout history and in the present day who have fallen, who have carried out acts of great evil, or who have been driven from the ministry in scandal. The damage that this does to the church is great. It gives an excuse for those who are lost to scorn the church and to label all Christians as hypocrites, unworthy of a hearing. But a Christian who walks in wisdom, especially in his dealings with unbelievers, exercises just as great of an influence in the other direction. Hardened hearts can be softened, negative stereotypes can be overwritten, and Christ is glorified by the man or woman who loves God and loves his neighbor. This way of living creates opportunities, each one of which is precious. We are reminded of this when Paul in this verse says that we ought to make the best use of our time. You might ask, what time is Paul speaking about here? And I think the answer is simple. There is a limited, a very limited amount of time that each and every person has in this life on earth, whether they are a Christian or not. While to a small child, the idea of having 70 or so years ahead to live seems like it's an eternity, 
The older we get, the faster and faster each hour, each day, each week, each month, each year, each decade passes by. Every breath that we have in this life is precious, a gift from God. And at any moment, that gift could come to its end. For the lost, each second that passes is like Russian roulette, with a black shadow of death and eternal punishment looming over them, waiting to catch them up. For the Christian, each moment is a precious opportunity to share the glorious news of the gospel with the lost, pointing out the inescapable pit in which they are stuck, the Savior who offers salvation to any who would come to him, and the eternal life of glory, not punishment, that awaits his people in heaven. Let us, as Paul exhorts us, take every opportunity that we have to proclaim the gospel, whether it's a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, or a stranger. Now, when you think about this sort of evangelism, there's a not-so-small chance that you feel intimidated by the idea And Paul seems to anticipate this. And so in verse 6, he gives us some ground rules, some instructions for how we can share that most precious of truths. Let's look at verse 6 together. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Just as the way that we live our lives is important and makes an impact on unbelievers, so also does how we speak around them and to them. Paul encourages our speech to be gracious. What does that mean practically? If our speech is to be grace-filled, then it needs to be both truthful and loving, as Paul exhorts in Ephesians 4.15. The need for truthfulness is obvious. The ninth commandment aside, that we should not bear false witness, unbelievers desperately need to hear the truth about their spiritual condition. They are in mortal, terrible danger, a danger to which they are completely blind. As Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It is our duty, our duty to tell unbelievers about the danger in which they are enthralled, in which they are embroiled. And it is our privilege to declare to them the beautiful news of the gospel. If we do not do it, who will? But it is also incumbent on us to speak with love. It is a passage that 
you're probably more familiar with from weddings than in sermons about evangelism. But 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, also applies to how we ought to communicate these matters of eternal significance to unbelievers. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. If we want to share the grace of God with someone, if we want to share the love of God with someone, it is so imperative that we act and speak in such a way that shows love and grace to that individual as well. A gospel that is shared merely out of dutifulness with no love in our hearts, or, may God forbid it, out of a spiteful desire to tell someone that you dislike or disagree with that they are damned unless they become more like you, is very unlikely to win any hearts or minds to your message. Let us endeavor instead to speak the truth in love, not adding any offense to the gospel, which is already offensive enough, conveying the love of God to the lost by our own love that we have for them. In verse 6, Paul goes on to encourage us to make sure that our speech is seasoned with salt. What What does that mean? Scholars differ in their interpretation of that passage, but there does seem to be a consensus that it includes speech that is free of corruption, as salt would have been used to prevent the corruption of meat at that time, as well as speech that is full of life and eagerness in the same way that salt enlivens a meal that otherwise is tasteless. Regardless of which meaning is meant, or if both are, it seems clear that our speech should be intentional. When we have the opportunity to speak with unbelievers for any significant period of time, we shouldn't waste our words on trivialities and distractions, keeping our conversations a mile wide but an inch deep. Instead, we should endeavor to speak about these things which are important and of lasting value, and to speak about them in such a way that shows how serious we are about them, not in a strict or grumpy or humorless way, but with eagerness and with earnestness, making the most of the opportunity that is before us. Finally, verse 6 says, that the believer should know how you ought to answer each person. This is reminiscent of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, 
where Peter exhorts us to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Preparation is key. If you are living a life that exhibits Christ, that exudes Christ-likeness, if you are sharing the gospel with others, when you have the opportunity, people will ask you questions. Of course, sometimes you can point the person to your pastor or to an elder or to another experienced Christian or resource when you are unsure. But there's not always time for that. Sometimes the window of opportunity is brief. And it is our duty as believers to be prepared for it. How can we be prepared? First and foremost, it is by the study of and the meditation on the word of God. And by sitting under the preaching of the word. All things that are necessary for salvation are clear in the word of God as our Westminster Confession says. And the more time we spend immersed in it, the larger the reservoir and knowledge of wisdom that we have to draw upon for the sake of others. Another great resource which helps us to understand the word we read better is the vast library of Christian works that we have at our disposal in our day and age. The church fathers, the reformers, the Puritans, and thousands upon thousands of other commentaries and theological works are just a click of the mouse away for us. Every person in this day and age has an overwhelming abundance of resources that heroes of the faith such as Augustine or Luther or Calvin, could never have dreamed of. Take advantage of the opportunity to soak in the wisdom of generations of believers who have gone before us. You will not regret it, and it will prepare you for the questions which you will encounter. This time spent in the Word and in the study of theology prepares us for the questions which are put to us. But Paul puts another phrase here in verse 6 that is important. We should know how we ought to answer each person. Each person is different from another. It would be foolishness to always answer a four-year-old in the same way we answer a 40-year-old, a Muslim in the same way we would answer an atheist, a member of a hunter-gatherer tribe in the same way we would answer the resident of a huge urban center. To paraphrase a commentator, every person should be treated as an end in themselves and not subjected to a stock default speech. We are not at liberty to alter the gospel. We are not at liberty to alter the word of God. But when thinking about how we can share the knowledge and wisdom that God has given us with somebody, it is only responsible to take into account who we are speaking to and adjust how we communicate accordingly. 
With that said, we have covered a great deal about how we can and indeed must share the gospel with the lost. How we should live and how we should speak with that purpose in our minds first and foremost. But it is so important to remember something when it comes to evangelism. We are not responsible for anybody's salvation. The fate of the eternal souls of unbelievers is in no way, shape, or form dependent on you, on whether you use word A or word B when sharing the gospel. It is not dependent on your mistakes or sins or lack thereof when relating to someone, and it, is, and it sure doesn't depend on whether you're able to communicate the main points in the writings of John Calvin or Martin Luther. Indeed, it doesn't even depend on the decisions of the unbeliever. Only God, in his infinite mercy and wisdom, can soften the heart and open the eyes of the lost, showing them their desperate need for a savior and holding forth his son, Jesus Christ, as their savior. We can only hope to be the tools that God deigns to use for this great purpose, seeking in the way that we live our lives to make ourselves ready and available for whenever he should see fit to use our actions and our words to share the good news with those who so desperately need it. Let us endeavor to do that, knowing that we are not alone, but that the Holy Spirit is working in us toward that end, making us more and more like our Savior day by day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that we could study today. And Father, we pray that you would help us to meditate on it throughout the week that you have set ahead of us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in prayer, to be constant in it, that we would not see it as a burden, but that we would see it as a glorious opportunity to communicate with you, to be blessed by you, that it is one of the foremost tools that you have given us to give us strength in this life. Lord, we pray also that you would give us opportunities to share the gospel, that you would put people in front of us who are asking questions, who, whose hearts have been softened and prepared for your word, Lord, and that you would give us the words and the wisdom for how to share the gospel with them, Lord. We pray that you would use us as your tools to save the lost and bring them into the fold of your people. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.